and we are live. Good to see you today, my EOS podcast friends. We are here with Extra from LD2. We have a really interesting silver-backed stable coin, a new generation of honest money, asset, asset-backed crypto that gives you vaulted physical ownership, redeemable pressure metals that you can also trade. So uh, this is a what's really interesting about this is the story behind LD2 and the Liberty dollar. So we're going to dig all into that and uh, just money in it itself. Um, let me get a shout out to our sound guy, Scott from hybrid.games. He is a sound engineer and is also doing a really cool project on EOS called hybrid.games where he's uh, playing with the, um, with sensory and games and blockchain. So that's cool. And then EOS Rider, of course, this EOS Rider is partnered with the EOS Podcast. So if you're looking for good media, up-to-date, uh, quality, honest, trustworthy, finally real media, uh, EOS Rider. So check that out. So without further ado, this is the EOS Podcast. We have Extra from LD2. Extra, go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, so my name is Extra Von Nothaus. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of LD2, which as Brandon mentioned is a silver-backed uh, cryptocurrency based around the model of Liberty Dollar, which my father invented in 1998 and launched his first version of a digital currency in 2003. And so we are bringing that model of sound money to EOS and to the crypto community in general. And so I'm happy to be here and uh, excited to talk about EOS and what's going on because I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about it from the last uh, meetup and such. Yeah. I mean, we just got to see each other in San Francisco at a, uh, the uh, big EOS meetup, the Tulip Conference, like kind of the one year anniversary of the EOS launch. So um, it was cool to meet you out there. And then the reason that I brought you on the podcast is you had some amazing stories. Uh, and, and I was like, you should talk on a podcast, man. You got all kinds of interesting stuff. So uh, uh, yeah, welcome to the show, man. And, and what do you think? What do you think? What's most interesting to you about EOS right now? Well, I think that there's, you know, obviously a lot of, um, a lot of well-deserved hype around DAX and the distributed autonomous community, uh, like the EO stack and so forth. Um, and certainly the one that, that CSX did on the main net was a monumental movement. But I have to say that for me, having been in crypto since 2012, uh, what I thought was most uh, interesting about being at the EOS meetups, and I've gone to the last couple ones, uh, the World Expo in San Francisco, and then obviously the, the BP Summit, was the kind of the sense of community, you know? Um, I think crypto in general is very like tribal in a way. And there's a lot of factions that like hate each other and, you know, SV versus cash versus classic and such. And for me, the EOS meetups and the EOS community seems much more like the early days of crypto when I started going to meetups in 2012 and 13. And you know, that's kind of what I missed to a certain extent about crypto is that it's not about us fighting each other. It's about us working together to fight for the greater good, you know. And, you know, I was really taken by how supportive everybody was. And I don't necessarily feel that when I go to Bitcoin meetups or crypto events and so forth. Um, so as much as there are great technical things going on with the BPs and the DAX and a bunch of stuff, to me, the community was much more, and the, the support by the community 
was much more striking than any kind of technical advancement or anything like that. Um, which I, I, it resonates with me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and from like a venture capitalist standpoint, you know, you hear about a lot of venture capitalists, one of the greatest VCs of all time, uh, Chris Saka, he based his investments uh, only really minimally on the project itself, but on the people. He would invite them up to a hot tub in, in uh, Tahoe and spend the weekend with the team and see what the team was really all about and then would invest based on that. Um, so not that EOS doesn't have uh, arguably some of the best tech, but but the people that drive projects are, are what really makes success. So um, I'm on board with that. And then, but the bigger point you're hitting there is these, these core values of crypto. The reason that a lot of people, us, are in crypto in the first place is this bigger, there, there's something bigger going on that we stand for, that I stand for, that I want to be a part of crypto. I want to do this because there is a, a possible change. There's this, this opportunity to possibly take some of, the, of our rightful ownership of ourselves and our power and our money back. Um, and, and that bigger picture is what it's about. And I think that's why you're in it too. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, in a lot of instances, and crypto and EO certainly exemplifies that, is technology is a avenue or a means to an end to a certain extent, right? So if you have a philosophical outlook and you want to execute that or you want to facilitate that in some way, you know, the technology is just there to help that facilitation, right? It, it's only there to do what you want it to do, right? And so, you know, if, if, if the community is coming from a position of, you know, we want to make things better or we want to make things different, um, maybe is a better way of putting it, then the technology is there to help you, right? But the technology can be used for nefarious reasons just as easily as um, altruistic reasons. And I think that that's, that's the interesting thing that I've always loved about, about blockchain and Bitcoin, or the crypto maybe is a better way of describing it, is that it attracts those types of individuals who have that same philosophical alignment, you know, about what they think things should be, what they don't like about the current structure, all the problems that come with the current monetary structure and monetary policies. Um, and so to me, that's what's most interesting about EOS and crypto in general. Yeah. And the technology is this there to facilitate or aid in whatever ends you're trying to get to, you know, and, so what, and are, what are you, what are you trying to get to? I mean, what, what are your, what's your philosophy and what are you trying to get to? Cause that's probably a good segue into what Liberty dollar two is. Right. So, I mean, you know, so stepping back for a second um, to what my father worked on uh, as kind of a segue into this is that, you know, my dad was running a manufacturing business. He made, he ran a private mint in Hawaii, making gold, making gold and silver coins. And he was always, always interested in money and so forth. And he just saw that the, the monetary policy is of the Fed and the realities of the Fed structure was just eroding wealth from people, you know, and, and only promoting the, the smallest 1% to be rich. And so in 1998, he launched Liberty Dollar as a physical currency with certificates, just like the U.S., dollar or certificates technically and they were all backed by silver and so he started in 1998 
and we were a family business at that point. And he essentially left the family business and bought a Cadillac and filled the Cadillac full of Liberty dollar certificates and marketing material and started driving around the country. And he knew that it had to be a grassroots movement. And so he drove around going to small businesses and friends of his asking them to use Liberty dollar as a replacement essentially for the, for the U S dollar. And over the, between 1998 and 2007, they had hundreds of thousands of people use the currency. Thousands of merchants accept the currency one-to-one -one with the U S dollar and about $80 million in circulation. Now in the world of crypto, $80 million seems very small. I mean, that's half of what the Ethereum Dow did in their, uh, in their, in their fundraising, <laughs> arguably the first ICO, but for a physical currency, that was the most successful alternative currency in the United States ever. And part of that was in 2003, he launched a digital currency, the electronic Liberty dollar known as ELD. And if you look at uh, the historical precedent for digital currencies at that point, before they were known as cryptos, there was DigiCash, which is quasi a currency. And there was E-Dollar, which is also quasi a currency, which was founded in 1996. And so, in 2003, when he launched the Liberty Dollar, it was really the first kind of currency that had been around before the digital version and then created a digital version. So um, he, he was able to prove a model that worked very well. And really that's what we're doing with LD2 is we're taking that model that worked for 10 years and updating it and upgrading it with crypto. And so we did our first version as an ERC-20 token on the Ethereum blockchain. And now we're moving to EOS for our second version, which is an open-ended uh, silver-backed cryptocurrency, LD2 Silver. And so are people from uh, the Ethereum tokens gonna be able to, you're gonna port those over to EOS when ready or how's that gonna work? Yeah, we haven't, we haven't exactly determined how we're gonna do that bridge maybe is a better way of describing it between the two chains. Um, at the moment, the ERC-20 tokens are standalone and we're working on developing the EOS token right in the smart contracts right now. Um, so at some point there may be a port or a bridge between them um, that we create. Um, but at the moment our focus is getting the EOS version uh, issued and up and running. Um, and, you know, the ERC-20 tokens are, you know, each, in every version of, of LD2, the, every digital token represents one ounce sitting in the vault. So the ERC-20 token holders can always redeem that token, basically a warehouse receipt, for the physical silver if they want. So they're not necessarily stuck in that token. But we do appreciate the need for either a listing on EOS decks so that people can exchange it or doing some sort of port or bridge as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess, uh, I mean, in time, the, the ability to expand this idea into any like multiple coins isn't, uh, you know, isn't unfathomable. It doesn't necessarily tie it to just one coin. Um, the, so, so how's the actual process work? It sounds like, so you have a, basically you have a fully insured vault. 
and for every Liberty dollar coin, you have one ounce of Troy silver that's audited and that is in the vault and that people can redeem on the blockchain uh, for actual silver or they can just trade on the blockchain. That, that's kind of the gist of it, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, we can, the LD2 ERC20 token was really made as a proof of product, mm -hmm. right? So that we could, we could fix, we could, we could address all the issues and make sure we had a working product which is why we limited that issuance to 10,000 tokens, which represents is backed by 10,000 ounces. So the way that structure works is which, which will be the exactly the same way that the EO structure works is you come to our website, you come to ld2coin.io, uh, you decide how many ounces of silver you want to buy. You buy the physical silver with the, EO, with the Ethereum, uh, with Ether essentially. And this will be the same with EOS. But using Ethereum as the, as the example that we have up and running, you would buy the silver with Ether. We would then send you into your wallet the LD2 Zero token. And that token is a digital warehouse receipt in the form of an ERC20 token. And so you have already purchased the physical silver. And now you have the receipts in the form of those tokens. So you can exchange those tokens and trade those tokens between your wallets, obviously. And the ownership of that silver goes with it. Uh, if you choose to at any point, whoever is the bearer of those tokens can then ask for physical redemption of that silver they've already purchased. And since they've already purchased the silver, the only cost to them is the shipping from the vault to them to get that physical silver. And that, that redemption is actually very, very important into the economics, the tokenomics, if you will, uh, of, the to of the LD2 system. Because being able to redeem as low as one ounce or one full token creates a price floor uh, for that token. So <clears throat> what I mean by that is there is a price, let's say silver is trading, selling for $15 an ounce, right? There is a price that the market will determine of where it makes more sense for the token holders to take physical redemption of that silver and then sell it for the $15 mm -hmm. instead of taking $5 for the token itself on an exchange. And so we've created these, this kind of market driven price floor of where the physical silver buoys the price of the token because nobody would take less for the, than the value of the physical silver while still allowing for appreciation in that token. Mm -hmm. So whether that be through speculation, which is how I would describe the price of Bitcoin and Litecoin and other altcoins being driven, or the underlying value of the silver going up would mm -hmm. also drive the value of the silver. I mean, it's the, the value of the token, excuse me. So the physical redemption seems like kind of a afterthought and a lot of the other silver and gold backed cryptos don't pay much attention. It actually is very critical in creating the market driven price for the token itself. Yeah. I mean, in, in a real, a real easy example for people trying to wrap their head around that is if uh, let's put me for example, and, and your LD2 is trading on an exchange, 
price of silver is $15 and I put in, I would just have orders sitting at $10 or maybe $12 uh, constantly. If anyone ever wants to sell me their silver for $10, then I will buy it. And, and so the price will never drop below that. And then as that happens, I'll just, you know, send in the redeem redemption to you and be buying $10 uh, silver bars, <laughs> you know? So, so right. Like, and, and you're taking advantage of that in your example, that $5 arbitrage per mm -hmm. ounce. Right. And you know, that's really why, you know, the redemption is important, but also so is the auditing. So we mm -hmm. do monthly independent audit by an independent CPA firm. And the way we built the smart contracts was they're, they're essentially a multi-sig of where you need all three signatures, the issuer, the vault, and the auditor to okay. acknowledge what the actual physical holdings in the vault is in order for us to issue tokens. So the number of tokens is always maintained in one-to-one -one parity with the number of ounces uh, in the vault. And if we ever fall out of that, then the independent auditor would issue their report and everybody would be able to see that there wasn't the silver backing up the number of ounces, number of tokens, excuse me, mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then you, you're burning, burning tokens essentially as if I redeem, if I redeem my token for some silver, then those tokens get burned. I'd imagine that's how that exactly, works. Exactly. Exactly. We, we, we would burn all those tokens as they come in. So when you do redemption, you would essentially put in your address, we would give you a quote for how much the shipping is. Um, and that's, we're not taking any premiums or anything above that. That's our cost because you already own the silver. This is simply just delivering it to you. And then you would send those tokens to a burn address and those would, would be essentially destroyed and you would get the silver because you either get, you either have the silver or you have the receipt. Mm -hmm. You can't ever have both given the way our smart contracts are built. And how does it work like with increasing supply? I guess people can buy the tokens from your website. Uh, at some point, do you expect people to kind of stop buying them from your website and just trade them on the open market? Is there a cap of how long you're going to create for or what's that look like? So for the first version, LD20, the zero version, essentially, mm -hmm. we uh, bought 10,000 ounces worth of silver mm -hmm. and we issued 10,000 tokens. Okay. And so that's a hard cap, never going to be anything beyond that. Uh, we also used a never before uh, publicly available 20th anniversary of Liberty Dollar coins mm -hmm. designed to actually back up those. Uh, so there's a collectability to those to actually the physical silver that you would get uh, for those tokens or that you buy it front maybe is a better way of putting it. So that version, that version is, is a hard cap. 10,000 ounces, that's all we're ever going to make. We're never going to do anything more. With the new EOS version, the silver version, as we describe it, it's going to be an open-ended uh, issuance. So it's more along the line of Tether, even though I am remiss to bring them up, <laughs> given a variety of reasons we won't necessarily get into in this conversation. But... As we obtain more silver, we're going to issue more tokens. And so it becomes kind of a different um, version, if you will, a different reality because it's not, it's, there's no hard cap to it. It's an mm -hmm. open-ended issuance. And so as we buy more silver and have the financing to do so, then we will issue more tokens 
given the silver that we have added to the vault. Okay, so the, so the first 10,000 you had minted yourself in their Liberty Dollar 2 tokens or actual silver uh, pieces. But after that, you can just buy silver in bulk basically and make sure that it's, um, that you're, that it's redeemable for, for people. Exactly. So okay. we've partnered with the largest silver supplier and producer in the country mm -hmm. um, who does all the silver for the U.S. Mint and for the South African mint and the Canadian mint. And they do, you know, billions of dollars of silver every year. So we've partnered with them in order to have the capacity and the scale in order to add new silver to the supply and therefore create new tokens in that supply as well. And so the plan is to add different tranches to that. Um, part of that is we need the financing to buy that silver. Part of that strategy is the price of silver changes over time, obviously. And so we need to be able to adapt the issuance price for those tokens to the actual price of the silver that's underlying it. Mm -hmm. So hopefully with the right financing partners and the right exchange partners, we can build up the liquidity within that token and add, you know, a million, 10 million, a hundred million, whatever the number is at a time and eat up that market that is interested in buying our tokens at our issuing price instead of at whatever the market or exchange price would be. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it seems stable coins, everyone's trying to build, or a lot of teams have tried to build stable coins at this point. What do you think the big drawback or why, why, why have so many people failed at the stable coin? You've got the steam stable coin, you've got uh, tether, you've got, uh, USDC, USDC. You've, yeah, yeah. You've got, you know, true token out there. Well, I think, I think it's a couple of different things. Part of it is that with any new market and with any new technology, uh, there hasn't been the, there hasn't been the time to test the models. Nobody really knows what models are going to work with the new technology. And you've seen that with, and I think we've seen that with crypto is that some of the models, token models don't work. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what we have is we have a model that existed for 10 years. So we know what the ups and downs of that model looks like and how successful that model can be. Uh, you know, related to that is that my co-founder and I were both very involved in that model in Liberty Dollar. So we know that as well. So I think part of it is people coming into crypto wanting to do a stable coin don't have the expertise or the experience in really knowing how something like that operates and what are the weak points or the trigger points that are going to drive that success or failure. And that's just, that's just a, that's just the reality of, of not having an existing um, technology for a long period of time to work out, mm -hmm. right? So I think people get into it thinking, oh, this is going to be easy. This is going to be, you know, a stable coin that I can build. And whether that's backed by fiat, like the U.S. dollar, or backed by gold and silver, their operational experience is limited, right? And not only their operational experience in a specific area is limited, but I think their 
finance experience or their banking experience is also limited in certain in, in certain aspects or instances, should I say. Mm -hmm. And so you're you're trying something for the first time that has that higher degree or higher likelihood of failure. And you're not addressing all the problems because you don't know what the problems are. And I think that's why a lot of the wallet stable coins go with fiat, go with US dollars, because on its face, that seems like the, the easiest solution, right? All I need to do is have, if I'm doing a, a US dollar backed, for example, right? All I need to do is have this number of dollars sitting in a bank account, mm -hmm. right? Which, you know, begrudgingly referring back to Tether is one of their problems, right? Is that they should be able to pass an audit. If they mm -hmm. are really one-to-one -one backed as they claim to be, that should be the easiest situation. A physical asset like silver is a little more difficult because you need the vault and you need the physical assets to be there and so on and so forth, right? So I think that that's why stable coins in general, and I have to point out that stable coin means different things to different people, um, is kind of a, a victim of the, people doing it to an extent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at something like Basis, which raises $133 million and then shuts down six months later, it's like, well, how did you not make $133 million in funding work? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I would love to have $133 million sitting in my account to buy silver with. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it's, it's a symptom of kind of, an early market where you can't test can't test models and i think it's um it's a it's a an example of what people who aren't in that industry get into without really knowing the industry and knowing what the pitfalls are going to be mm -hmm. and i think those are those are the probably the two major problems or drivers of those issues yeah and and so it sounds like obviously the vault and purchasing physical silver and that whole infrastructure is, is a big barrier to entry. So people say, okay, well, I'm just gonna go with fiat. You know, that all, that all happens in cyberspace and is numbers on a computer. That, that, that's a pretty logical uh, leap for me to make. I, 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 I could see that. Uh, that being said, so Tether's, Tether's done that. Uh, that being said, um, if, let's say Tether, Tether had done it better and they were auditing they had fully transparent auditing and you could see that there was a dollar for every token which we know that you, we can't see that but let's say someone did that right what's the problem with using usd uh, usd backed um, well i mean you know it, it it's a little bit about what your philosophy is to a certain extent or what your opinions on monetary policy are you know that are going to drive that for me uh layering crypto on top of fiat is not the solution mm -hmm. i mean you're dealing with an underlying <clears throat> quote-unquote asset in the in u.s dollar that is inherently inflationary by its very nature that's a debt instrument uh you're losing purchasing power i mean between 1913 when the fed was put in place and 2013 the first hundred years you lost 97% of your purchasing power. Meaning what you could buy with a dollar in 1913 
excuse me, when you could buy for two cents in 1913, it would cost you a dollar in 2013, right? That is the nature of the monetary policy of the U.S. Mint, I mean, excuse me, of the Federal Reserve, of the ECB, of all the current monetary policy executors, if you will. And so to layer crypto on top of a inflationary device, to me, is not solving the problem. It's mm -hmm. just, it's just you're, you're adding new technology to something that is inherently flawed. And, yeah. you know, it's that old um, uh, developers uh, saying that I, that I know from years and years ago, right? Garbage in, garbage out, diamonds in, diamonds out, right? If you're putting garbage with fiat into your crypto, you're not solving the problem, right? And to me, even the idea of a pegged currency, a pegged cryptocurrency, in and of itself is a manufactured device. It's a manipulated instrument because the only way you can keep that one-to-one -one parity or pegging is to manipulate the supply of the tokens. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Tether had to partner with somebody like Bitfinex, where it has the ability to bring tokens in and out of supply in order to keep that pegged to what it is. And so you are, you're starting with something that's flawed, and then you're adding in manipulation in order to maintain that pegging to a flawed device. And while I can certainly appreciate what Tether has done, in terms of building a business from zero to two and a half billion in circulation in five years or whatever it's been, which is very impressive. I think that it's something that you and I discussed before we got on the air a little bit, which is first movers aren't always the best. Mm -hmm. You have to learn from the errors of the first movers uh, and see what they did wrong and what their problems were. And so second or even third movers can see that and fix it and come out with a better product. And so, well, like, again, I, I really respect uh, what Tether had done because that's a very difficult business to build. And I'm sure having Brock Pierce be one of the founders and developers of that um, speaks to why it's been able to make it as far as it has. But I don't think it has the long-term longevity le le that um, other options like LD2 have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's from a, from a risk perspective, it, it is risky to, it's not something you wanna put your money into and leave it there, you know, who, who you, someone would be crazy if you, they said they were gonna put their money in Tether and leave it there for the next 10 years. Um, <laughs> right. Well, also, you know, and, and again, you know, to that point, you know, it serves a purpose. If you want to get out of a crypto position into something that you're not going to be able to lose value in. So if you want to realize your appreciation into Tether and then get out into U.S. dollars, I completely understand that. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt that that is the best use case for Tether. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is why it's seen especially in 2017 when the market was just rocking and rolling that you saw the biggest increase in volume in Tether was because people were looking for some way to protect their appreciation, to protect their earnings. Uh, 
and that was the best mechanism to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that use case still exists, but there are better solutions now where Tether was really the only solution at that point in time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it's funny because, uh, you talk about, um, you know, being tied to the U S dollar and it is almost like at this point, the, well, f- when it transferred to fiat, fiat becomes a, uh, just a, an agreed consciousness that we're all operating on, but there's not, there's nothing really tied that, that makes it, uh, you know, there's nothing tethering it to the ground, to earth. It's just this thought. And then, so you're taking the thought of a dollar and then putting the thought of a stable coin on top of it. That, you know, <laughs> I like, I like the idea of there being something actually tethering this to the earth. Like, no, there's like this physical thing that you can say, like, it's redeemable. Like it keeps us, keeps us, you know, it keeps us grounded a little bit. Um, and, and for people who don't know what I'm talking about, everyone I'm sure does, but it, you know, and I think it was 71 Nixon took us off the, uh, gold standard and uh, ever since then we've had fiat currency which has been one of the greatest experiments in money uh probably in the history of the world so <laughs> so really at this scale i mean yeah. nothing, nothing has been done at this sort of scale yeah. you know in terms of in terms of fiat you know and um you know to to your point you know if you want something to get out of if you want a different position to get out of then for a short period of time then yes, USDC, Tether, all serve that purpose, right? But like you said, you wouldn't hold Tether for 10 years. And part of that reason is because the underlying asset is eroding, right? Mm -hmm. And with something like LD2, where it's backed by silver, and this is the true of any, you know, asset-backed crypto, is that you you have the ability for appreciation over that time because the underlying asset has the ability to appreciate. Right. Fiat has no ability to appreciate. So, you know, it's really as with any kind of investment or financial device you get into. The first question is, what's your horizon? Mm -hmm. Right. How long do you want to hold this for? Where where do you expect to get out of this? You know, those sort of things. Right. So, you know, there there is certainly the functions of that functions for those stable coins, for those fiat backed stable coins. But that's only if your horizon is a week, a month, mm-hmm. you know, a year at most. I think, that, I think even a year is stretching it. But if you're looking for something that is a little more long-term, and I know in the world of crypto, long-term is, you know, I mean, five years is, you know, long-term. And, and yeah, that's, <laughs> really long. that's real long. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you think about you got in 2014 mm-hmm. and you're still holding something in now, you've yeah. probably done pretty well. Yeah. You know, yeah. You've, you know you've, you've ridden the ups and downs and you've probably done okay, you know. Yeah. But that's only if you are willing to, to take that time period and you don't need to get out. Yeah, you know, an interesting concept that comes up when you say that is that you actually, this facilitates the the uh, ability to not have to exit to U.S. dollars for a longer term because, so, you know, let's say 2017, you had, uh, I mean, let's say at any point, you, you've made money in cryptocurrency and you want to exit. A lot of people are trying to, they're scampering to exit to U.S. dollars because, there's nowhere really safe to go if you 
are wanting to hold for 10 years. Like none of these cryptocurrencies could you predict will be, will be for sure around in 10 years or that have a good chance. Like if you want something, if you want to take earnings and then make them secure, you really have to go to us dollars or to silver or gold. You know, that's what people do. Um, this is a way to keep it within the crypto ecosystem, but tie it to silver. So you could be safe. I've got a bunch, I've got earnings, boom, put it there and just leave it there for a few years, you know, and not have to worry. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, we want to be kind of that trust option, you know, mm -hmm. and that's why we're very mindful about transparency, which is why we do everything on chain, you know, the using the ERC 20 token as an example, all the smart contracts are audited. They're all public. Everybody can see what we're doing. Every transaction is public. You know, the audit reports are public. The audit reports are put on chain as well. So we're trying to kind of play that role, that trust role. And, you know, again, our partner, our silver partner who does the vaulting as well has been around for 50 years. You know, they have, dozens of government contracts all around the world they're not going anywhere mm -hmm. you know for us you know it's also a matter of the jeopardy they face by losing their government contracts which is multi-billion dollars a year makes the idea the operators would abscond with our silver like inconceivable mm -hmm. like why would they ever do that right we're a drop in the bucket in their business Right. And I think that's what you see with a lot of cryptos, especially in the exchanges, is that the, the operators have short term goals, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily thinking about it for 10 years, 20 years. How long are they going to hold these tokens for? Right. And so, again, going back to the kind of transparency we offer is, you know, our tokens are UCC contracts. So one of the uniform commercial code. If you buy a token from us, you have a contractual relationship with the vault. And this is in the terms of the smart contract where the vault will always honor your tokens for redemption of the physical silver in perpetuity. And we have prepaid, we have prepaid the storage of the silver and we will continue to prepay that for 10 years. And when you buy the silver, so we're not going anywhere. The vault isn't going anywhere. Even if LD2 went away and we disappeared, as what happened with my father's business with Liberty Dollar, there is always a contractual obligation to be able to redeem your silver from the vault. So we are taking much more of that long-term kind of value, which also is part of the reason of why we haven't been doing a lot of PR. We haven't been trying to hype us ourselves up in a way is because we want to make sure we're building something that that's, has a strong foundation and people can trust for the long term. So whether they want to get in for one day and see the appreciation or they want to get into silver now, which is a great time because silver is super cheap historically at $15, we want to be that solution for everybody who's looking for that kind of, that kind of product. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what is the market for something like that? I know that as you know, when there's downturns in the stock market or when there is a little bit of fear in the, in the general market that gold and silver pick up, what, what's that? How big is that market? How, how big is that need? 
So you're absolutely right. I mean, silver and gold historically have always been a hedge against, you know, equity, equity market downturns or bond market downturns because it is a more um, stable market for lack of a better, lack of a better term. Um, so that's certainly one aspect of who we want to attract, but a lot of those institutional investors who are looking for that kind of head have ETFs, they have future contracts, they have other devices to them. Um, now there's fault with those devices, I would say, or those instruments. And I would say that LD2 can fill that role because we are physical ownership of the silver. So you never have to worry about having paper ownership like an ETF, where you're not actually buying the silver or the futures, you're not actually buying the physical asset underlying it. Um, but I think our focus is much more on the crypto market because mm -hmm. generally speaking, it's a much more volatile market. And not only is it much more volatile, as we've seen from, you know, 20,000 to 3,000, now back up to almost 9,000, right, in, in a year or so, a year and a half maybe, um, we think that the volatility of the market creates a much bigger need for something that's stable and a much bigger need for something that is transferable in a very easy way. I mean, going from, you know, going from, you know, your, whatever your crypto holdings are to ether to LD2 in the zero version is a pretty frictionless, in pretty frictionless transaction, right? You know, if you're going crypto to crypto to crypto, there isn't a whole lot of friction you have to deal with in terms of expense or problems or so forth, right? And so we still think that providing that opportunity to crypto is where our kind of focus is. Now, I would love institutional investors and hedge funds and stuff to say, this is a great option for physical silver and let's get into it. But at the moment, you know, I like serving the least serviceable people, the least serviceable market to a degree. And I think that's where, I think that's where crypto is, is that people need something because, you know, all the crypto, all Bitcoin, all the altcoins are very highly correlated in price, ups and downs, all go together. You know, I don't, I just don't think that there's the same opportunities in crypto that there are in the traditional markets. And so I'd like to serve that market. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd, I'd like to serve that market that's underserved. And especially because as we discussed earlier, I think that's a market that more philosophically aligns with my own values and the own type, the, the, the type of individuals that I want to participate with. I mean, I was in banking for many years uh, and investment banking for part of that. And those guys don't need help. <laughs> those guys don't need new products mm. you know they're gonna they're gonna do their thing whether whether the bitcoin blockchain whatever these things exist or not mm -hmm. you know so i don't know i mean maybe it's a little bit of a personal bias but like i'd rather help the people that like i more like mm -hmm. in a very <laughs> simple way right i mean <laughs> and who need it um, and who are building what I see as, you know, the monetary foundations of the future, right? Um, 
going, going back to my dad's case for one second, as an analogy, when my father was arrested and ultimately convicted of counterfeiting, the idea of using the word coin was legal jeopardy because the word coin meant a government issued product mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. nobody used coin except for the U.S. Mint. Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin completely changed that paradigm. Coin oh, wow. is now so corrupted as a word that the U.S. Mint and the U.S. government cannot protect any longer. Those are the type of changes I like mm -hmm. and I appreciate and that I want to see. So I want to support the individuals who are doing that sort of things similarly to the way my father pushed those bounds, mm -hmm. right? So, um, to, so to summarize, I want to focus on crypto and yeah. I want to focus on the crypto market, right? And I want to help those who have the least ability to help themselves, not the investment bankers and the traditional institutional investors who have the most ability to help themselves. Mm -hmm. And eventually they're going to find their way into this market because they're missing out on gains. They're missing out on ROI. They're missing out most importantly on alpha mm -hmm. and eventually they'll get here. But uh, you know, that's the way it is, you know, and that's just kind of my outlook on things, you know, mm -hmm. and people may not agree with that, but I'd rather support a community that supports me instead of one that completely rejects me mm -hmm. uh, for their own selfish gains. Yeah. You know, and it, it's cool. I mean, Liberty dollar too. It's cool that, that shout out to your dad who was, you know, who, was I mean Liberty Dollar is such a great name. I mean that's what it is. It's it's this erosion of you know, of inflation that essentially attacks and um, you know killing the the value of money that we make. And Liberty Dollar is a great name. Can you tell a little bit more about that story? How you know it sounds like he was running the business for quite a long time before the Feds came in and decided it had gotten too big or it was competing. What what that what was that situation like? Yeah. So um, I'm glad you asked. That's a good. That's a good good piece to bring up because a lot of people don't know the real story mm -hmm. and there's a lot of misinformation out there uh, about what actually happened. So 2000, so 98, he starts it 2003. He does a digital version, starts taking off digital version was very, very successful as compared to the physical version, uh, the physical certificate, should I say? Uh, and so he starts negotiating with bigger companies. People start finding interest. Um, there's a lot of local news stories about Liberty Dollar because my dad would drive around, come into town, start talking to merchants. Mm -hmm. What you would hear about in the news and they would do a local news story about it. And a lot of those news stories included um, the, the reporters themselves going to the DOJ or the local FBI agents or the Secret Service and asking about legitimacy of Liberty Dollar. And in literally every single instance, the law enforcement that was interviewed said, totally legal. This is a barter system. This is legal under federal law, legal under state law. People can use it, no problems at all. But the problem is that it started getting very successful. And they started being some very large corporations, uh, which I won't mention their names, but you know, very, very large, some of the largest corporations in the country started taking interest in it and seeing that in their retail operations, they could find a profit here. Because they could take it one-to-one -one with the U.S. dollar, exchange it for silver, sell the silver, find a return on that. So in 2007, the U.S. Mint, for the first time, sent a letter to the Liberty Dollar, to my father, saying, 
we've reconsidered the legalities of what you're doing. And we think that you are running afoul of the law. And we believe that you are a fraudulent operation, a Ponzi scheme of And so in return of the, in, in response to that, my father sued the U.S. Mint and said, I want a federal judge to come in and make some sort of determination on what the legality of this is. Mm-hmm. It had never gone to court. No one had ever sued my father or the, or the organization. And so he sued them in federal court in response to a letter telling them to shut it down. Well, that case never came to trial because in November of 2007, instead of going through the judicial process, the FBI raided the vault in Idaho. And if you read the court documents, it's pretty clear that the FBI showed up at the vault not expecting there to be any silver mm. or gold backing up the, the currency. They thought it was a completely fraudulent operation where he was taking money for people, giving them a worthless piece of paper, and so on and so forth. What they found was seven tons of silver and gold in the vault. Oh, my God. And the vault operator was basically like, where is your truck? And they were like, we don't have a truck. And he was like, well, how are you going to move all this silver and gold? And so beginning in, so starting from the raid, that essentially destroyed the business. Because Mm -hmm. now all the silver that was backing up the currency had now been confiscated. Now it turns out that the FBI really had nowhere to put all that silver. And so they left it in the vault and paid the vault operator to leave it there and take care of it for them. So it was between 2007 and 2009, when my father was actually arrested by the FBI, that they actually figured out what to charge him with and how to charge him with a crime. And the the crime they charged him with, which is Federal Penal Code 486, which is two sentences, it was written in the 1840s. It was meant to keep the Confederacy from creating its own currency during the Civil War. And basically what it says is, if you create a competitor to the U.S. dollar and promote it and market it as a competitor to the U.S. dollar, you are, by definition, counterfeiting. And not the traditional counterfeiting, where you get something for free. You know, I go into a store, I give you a fake $10 bill, I get a pack of cigarettes, you're now with that pack of cigarettes, you've now lost, I've gained, right? This is counterfeiting in the sense of you are competing with the U.S. dollar by definition. So he was arrested by the FBI in 2009. He was eventually convicted of three counts of counterfeiting under 486 because essentially the law says that if you do what he did, you were counterfeiting. Um, And so he was convicted and the prosecutors asked for 22 years in prison, which being for somebody in his early 70s would have been essentially a life, life, uh, life sentence. They then went a step further and they tagged him as a domestic terrorist, which then add 50% to your, to your sentence. Wow. So they were originally asking, they were, initially, they were finally asking for 33 years in prison for my father. The judge uh, delayed sentencing for three and a half years in order to properly assess what the situation was. Mm. 
And eventually he sentenced my father to six months of house arrest and three years of probation. Probation actually got cut down to two years because he didn't violate anything during that time. And he was essentially released off of current, out of custody in 2017. So 10 years went by from when they raided the vault and basically destroyed the company in 2007 to when he finally got off of probation. Wow. Wow. That's a serious, that is, you know, even though, even (laughs) though it ends with six months of house arrest, which, you know, when you say it like that, it's like, oh, that's not that big a deal. But 10 years of, I mean, I can only imagine the drama during that 10 years dealing with, dealing with the government for 10 years and being basically, I mean, that's, that's akin to being in jail. You know, that's not, it's not, it's not easy to, to be dealing with the government like that for 10 years and especially waiting to be sentenced with that kind of, with that kind of sentence hanging over your head. That's a, that's a, that's a long 10 years right there, man. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, sitting around for three years thinking that you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life, but you Mm -hmm. haven't actually been sentenced yet was particularly egregious. But uh, the finality of the case is actually quite positive, which is Mm -hmm. that the federal judge, Judge Voorhees, uh, determined that but for the actions of the FBI, the owners of that seven tons of silver would have been able to redeem their silver that they already owned. And so what he forced is he forced the Department of Justice and the U.S. Marshals to return all of the silver that they had confiscated. <laughs> okay. So about 600 people filed petitions with the court in order to get their silver back. Mm-hmm. And so some people got one ounce of silver back. Some people got 15,000 ounces back hundreds of thousands of dollars of silver that they had purchased that was sitting in this vault uh, or sitting in the, in the, in evidence in Dallas where the U S marshals held it all. So if you were an individual who held the silver, who bought the certificates and had the silver, you could get your silver back then through the petitions. And up until this day and for going forward, my father still honors those uh, certificates. So there was a 20-year term on the certificates. On, um, excuse me. There was a 10-year term on the certificates. And so if you bought a certificate in 2006, oh, excuse me, a 20-year term. So if you bought a certificate in 2006, you have the right up until 2026 to actually get your silver back. So the, US, the DOJ and the marshals were tired of holding this. And they weren't going to do redemption. So they returned portion portion of that silver to my father in order for him to fulfill his contractual obligations that are on the back of every Liberty Dollar certificate. And so we at LD2 have done the same thing. So when you buy an LD2, actually silver, and you get the token, we have guaranteed you prepayment of that silver in this vault for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So that... If there's people out there who are Liberty Dollar supporters or owners who want their silver, they can certainly go and contact my father and do so. And we hope that 
Liberty LD2 uh, purchasers can see that that is the worst case scenario. And because he worked through the worst case scenario, we know how to work through it in this best case scenario. Mm-hmm. And so we will never let those sorts of, th- the point being this, is that even with all the legal problems that Liberty Dollar found and my father's conviction, even in that worst case scenario, there was not a single person who lost their silver. So if the legal realities exist for those people to be maintained and kept whole, we can do the same in a far easier situation. Yeah, and what, what makes the situation with LD2 easier? What, what, what is it that you think got your father caught up with Liberty Dollar 1 that you're not doing with Liberty Dollar 2? It's actually, it's actually, it's actually quite simple. Um, and the, the judge in my father's case outlined this in his final uh, sentencing memorandum, which is 42 pages. And basically what it says is that the core of the issue is whether your currency can be mistaken for a government issuance. Oh, okay. So Liberty Dollar mm-hmm. doesn't sound distinct enough from a government issue. You could confuse people that Liberty Dollar is a legitimately government-issued product, currency. Mm-hmm. No one in their right mind would ever consider cryptocurrencies to be a government-issued issuance, mm-hmm. right? So it comes down to, are you marketing it as a competitor to the U.S. dollar? And is there ability for you to confuse this, this product for a government product? The idea that somebody would think that Bitcoin, Litecoin, LD2, any cryptocurrency is government issued is ridiculous. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it is the... It is the antithesis of a government product Uh right it is a complete rejection of government involvement right Mm -hmm. and that's why bitcoin litecoin dogecoin every all those altcoins would never find themselves in the same legal jeopardy but that never would have been legal precedent unless my father's case had gone had had run its course Mm -hmm. so for someone to come after any cryptocurrency, including LD2, they would have to prove to a jury that it is reasonable that you would confuse this with a government issuance. Mm-hmm. And the, the unlikelihood, excuse me, the unlikeliness that some prosecutor would be able to do that is the reason of why you don't see prosecutions on liberty, on, on any cryptocurrency under this same statute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes really, sense. That's really why we feel comfortable that we can use the LD2, I mean, the Liberty Dollar operational model of the vaulting and the redemptions and the auditing and all those sort of aspects with, a, with the new technology of cryptocurrencies and, and EOS in particular without finding ourselves in any particular legal jeopardy that he found himself in. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because. He never knew 
that that was the that that was the line that that was the standard that was being that he would be held against and there are certainly instances where my father and liberty dollar went too far where their marketing wasn't specifically distinctive enough to make it clear this was not a government issuance and one of the big pieces of evidence that they used against my father was a segment he did for the learning channel where he goes around dc and buys souvenirs with his liberty dollar and he never explains to the merchant that he's buying the souvenirs from that this is a private currency that this is not a government issuance and because he didn't and it was on film that was one of the major factors that led the jury to believe that he wasn't making it clear and that he was confusing it with a government issuance. So the landscape, the legal landscape between what my father did and what we are in today is completely different. And that's why we don't, our familiarity and our expertise in this leads us to know that we will not be in that situation that he was in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can see a pretty clear difference there. And I, I mean, so I, I haven't seen a Liberty dollar. I'm sure people can Google them. Are they the, are they like the size of a, a U.S. dollar? Or like they're, they're a, a piece of paper type of thing? Yeah, the, the, you, can, you can Google the images and you can see them. Um, he never used green ink. Mm -hmm. because green ink is all a plot is all you know a, you know uh associated with uh the u.s dollar so they were they were blue they were purple they were red but they were the same size they never had a president on them they always had the statue of liberty um and so if you saw a physical dollar if you saw a physical ld2 certificate you would know the difference yeah, and it says warehouse receipt on it, really giant too. Which right, is... and there's you know there's some um, there's some holograms on the corners. There's you know there's gold foil on it. It's a yeah. It looks like play. It looks like Monopoly money, basically. <laughs> right, yeah. and and that was the point. Right, the point was that you know he was worried about counterfeiting in terms of it's looking too similar. Yeah, for sure. For he sure. wasn't thinking about counterfeiting from this obscure loft in the eighteen forties. It's competing. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, so if you were if you went to a store and you handed somebody a Liberty Dollar certificate, and I and see you're looking at them now, yeah. you would know the difference. Somebody would look at that and go, like, wait a minute, this is not what yeah. I was looking at. Well, because when you said when you said that uh, you know he handed it to merchants and they just accepted it and he didn't explain, I was like, oh well, does this thing look like you know like like if I was a store clerk, would I just accept this? Uh, for anyone who's just listening to this, these you would not just like take these in and be like, oh, thanks for the money. It's like this looks like if someone handed you Monopoly money, you wouldn't be like, oh, thanks. You'd be like, what what is this? What's going on? Right, you know? right. Why, anyway. Yeah. And, 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 you know, to that, to that point, you know, that was part of the marketing campaign, right? Was that he used it as an opportunity to start a conversation with the merchant, uh -huh. right? Mm -hmm. So here is something that you don't recognize and you don't know what it is, but let me explain it to you. And let me take the opportunity to see if you want to accept it. And, you know, he had 
about 350 regional currency officers, as they were known, RCOs, that were spread all over the country. So you could go to the RCO with this currency and you could get fiat back, you could get, you know, US dollars back, or you get the silver back, because he never wanted anyone to be stuck with something that they didn't want. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want them to be out of the money that they took it for. So even if a merchant did accept it and eventually decided they didn't want it, they could go to anywhere in their, in their region. And again, there was 320 spread across the country, so you didn't have to go far. And you could get your U.S. dollars or you could get the silver for it. So that nobody was, nobody was left holding the bag, for lack of a better expression. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the issue of the trial was that when they originally were trying to charge him with fraud, there were no victims. Mm-hmm. And given the length of time that the U.S. government held the silver that backed up the currency, the price of silver almost tripled during mm-hmm. that period. So mm-hmm. most people who were involved, even though they couldn't access their silver, when they could, they were up. Everybody made money. Mm-hmm. It was more valuable than when you bought it. So there wasn't any victim statements. There wasn't any victims complaining in the courthouse, which is why the fraud charges against them were dropped, including wire fraud and bank fraud. And only the counterfeiting with this obscure law was the only one that, that held up. Yeah. And it looks like uh, on, in, on Wikipedia, it says guilty of uh, quote unquote, making coins resembling and similar to United States coins. So, uh, so that's actually that's actually not entirely accurate. Okay. Because the second sentence in Statute 486 mm-hmm. says that the competition with the U.S. dollar is the only factor that matters. Okay. The 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 similarity or the resemblance to a U.S. dollar has no impact on whether you're committing counterfeiting or not. Interesting. Okay. So even though he purposefully mm-hmm. tried to make his currency look different mm-hmm. to not fall under the counterfeiting laws. Okay. It was eventually that the counterfeiting laws that said that it didn't matter what it looked like were the ones that actually got it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's very, it's very nuanced. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the, the, the things that comes up in my mind is kind of like, uh, you know, we're, we're always playing with fire when you're, when you, if you're ever competing with the government, you're playing with fire. Uh, and I, th- because it's ultimately laws or no laws, like the federal court system is a very, uh, very easily manipulated and, and they use it. Uh, they wield that power pretty, pretty, uh, ruthlessly. So, um, you know, this brings in, I just, man, I didn't get a chance to verify this article. So forgive me, but I saw that the Indian government proposed a bill to ban all cryptocurrency with a 10 year sentence. If you're holding transacting or even have cryptocurrency. Um, I that's wonder. Pretty that's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty serious. Yeah. I mean, and I, I know, yeah, I know the, I'm um, sorry to interrupt, but I know the, the, um, the Indian central bank, mm-hmm. the fed of India has, for years said that cryptos are illegal. Yeah. You know, and, and for years said that, that, you know, cryptos couldn't operate within India. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, which is pretty um, monumental when you think about it, because think about how much impact China has on the crypto markets mm-hmm. and how many players and how much is held in China. 
imagine if India, with its insanely large population and technical savvy and mm-hmm. financial savvy, had been able to come into this market. Yeah. You know, who knows how much more funding, um, cryptos, tokens, you know, use cases would have come in if that sort of population was allowed to participate in this market. Yeah. I mean, India is an interesting case study because they're really heavy handed with their, um, with their monetary policy. You know, they, I think that they're the country that uh, removed all the uh, big bills out of circulation. Small bills. No, they removed all the small bills out small of circulation. Bills. So it was it was ten. It was the ten. Um, it was the ten rupee uh, dollar bills that they took out. And that was to force people onto their digital currency. Is that right? I think it, part of it was to cut down on the black market, apparently, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of crime, crime syndicates were uh, hoarding those bills mm-hmm. as one of their big instruments of power. And so by devaluing those current, by devaluing those bills, those certificates, they were able to undercut the power of those crime syndicates mm-hmm. um, and force people into more traditional regulated accounts and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've definitely taken a very, um, let's say aggressive approach to yeah. how they manage their money supply. Yeah, you know, I'm, I've been working on a, I've been thinking through this article, I've written a, a bunch of it, but uh, it's it's kind of about the coming consolidation and routes that might take as far as, you know, there's lots of cryptocurrencies, lots of experiments out there right now. Uh, inevitably, governments, companies, uh, just groups of people are going to try to consolidate coins, power, money, into kind of more, they're not necessarily centralized, but like get everyone using the same mm-hmm. thing. Um, and, and I'm wondering how that's going to play out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the oligarch, you know, kind of like, um, you know, approach to a certain extent, you mm-hmm. know. But, you know, I think that people, I think that the general population also doesn't really understand how monetary policy um facilitates other types of geopolitical actions, right? I mean, if, for example, in the U.S., right, um, for the government, to a large extent, money is free, right? Mm -hmm. It's a debt instrument that they're they're all saddling the citizens with. And that allows them to spend $600 billion on arms and on the military, and be the largest arms manufacturer and dealer in the in the world, right? And to allow other um, regimes and dictators to exist around the world using our using our technology and our might in a lot of real ways. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's only because, or it's largely because, the U.S. government has that free money to build those arms, to sell to Saudi Arabia or to sell to Brazil or other places that it really come where the rubber meets the road. Right. And so, you know, taking that strength or that ability away from the government or away from those powerful industrial, you know, comp and, you know, the military industrial complex that FDR talked about, right. Or Eisenhower mm-hmm. talked about, excuse me. Eisenhower um, about, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, 
those are the realities of the monetary policy, right? It's mm -hmm. not just loss of purchasing power and inflation, all these things we see, but it's just geopolitical powers. And so, you know, again, going back to, uh, you know, cryptos and such and philosophical alignment um, of what I believe in, that's a way of eroding that, mm -hmm. you know, and, and by getting people together and saying that like, you don't have to be in that situation, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? I think is a very like powerful social instrument that we have. Yeah, it's, it's hugely powerful, but uh, you know, I really question cause there, there's a big elephant in the room with the amount of power that being able to print money uh, comes with. And is that going to be kind of released? You know, I, I, I would have to believe that the powers that be that, that control the monetary or that depend on being able to print money and make and have it have value are looking for ways to counter counteract the um, cryptocurrency kind of evolution here, because without being able to just print money, if, if every, if people stop using money as people stop using cash and then they can't just print it anymore out of nowhere, that's like their power disappearing. I wonder if they, if there's plans to try to stop that in the way that India has just kind of put down a hard line. I think there's no doubt that there is, you know, the people want to protect their own interest, right? Especially mm -hmm. when you have a lot of power. But I think it is a, it's a slow erosion. You know, yeah. it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's the same way that, you know, when Liberty Dollar was out and was, was circulating $80 million, $80 million is nothing. Mm -hmm. That is, that is a, it's not even a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's nothing. Right. But now we have, but now we have cryptos and, you know, today we're at what, 260 billion in market cap mm -hmm. of cryptos. You know what I mean? That is a huge monumental change in a relatively short period of time. Now, again, 260 billion in the grand scheme of the financial markets and money supply in the world is a drop in the bucket. Now it's probably a drop, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, it's an erosion. And I think that, to a certain extent, we're in a we're in a paradigm that we think is permanent, but it was only in, invented a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. right? The Fed only came into existence in 1913, right? It's not like we've had this from the founding fathers. Yeah, that's a good right? point. <laughs> so I think that while it seems like a huge problem, I think that it is a it's a slow erosion, like I said, and it's a, it's a shift that, you know, generations learn from previous generations, right? And they learn from, you know, what are the, what are the incremental steps that the last generations take that now becomes a bigger step mm -hmm. and a bigger step and a bigger step, right? So you have to start with, um, you know, what's that, what's that Buddhist saying? the longest journey starts with a single step, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, that, yeah, you could say this problem is insurmountable, but if you never take it on, you never make any progress. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, and I think that, that crypto is also, a, is also attracting the best minds, the people who want to get involved in monetary policy and changing the, changing the system. They're in crypto. Mm -hmm. They're not in banking. They're not financial services. I've had friends that work at the ECB and at the Fed. There's nothing going on there. Yeah. <laughs> right? They're there to maintain the status quo. 
Yeah, right? they're spinning those. They're spinning those same gears that have been spinning for you know fifty years. And you you said a hundred and something years, but as far as how long this has been established, actually, like kind of the 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 bigger experiments only since the seventies when when fiat was invented, decoupling from decoupling from precious metals. So um, yeah, exactly, it is pretty short lived. It is. You're absolutely mm -hmm. right. I mean, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, Nixon was the one who who find the sino fi, sign the final order to end the gold standard mm -hmm. you know what i mean like our parents were alive you know what i mean like the, the, yeah. well that's crazy because you think about well this this crazy fiat experiment's only been around 50 something years bitcoin's been around 10 years now so i mean uh it's really not that much they're, they're not that dissimilar in in new inventions so Especially when you consider that money and gold has been around as a means of exchange for 2,000 years, mm -hmm. 3,000 mm -hmm. years, 5,000 years, whatever that number is, mm -hmm. right? I mean, proportionally, this fiat experiment is, you know, just as new as crypto is yeah. in the grand scheme of things, right? So mm -hmm. it isn't this kind of, in, it seems this intractable situation we're in mm -hmm. just because everybody is bought into the same paradigm but that's not the reality right i mean in a hundred years this is going to look like the very beginnings mm -hmm. the same way that in 1913 if you were around in 1915 for example or 1920s let's say right 10 years in you would have been like well this fiat thing is brand new like i'm not sure it's going to work i'm mm -hmm. still at the gold standard right mm -hmm. you were so uncertain about like what was going to work what the realities were we're there now with crypto mm -hmm. right i mean it's not it's not any different in terms of just getting people engaged getting people to learn the situation mm -hmm. and that educational burden is probably the biggest one more than anything you know um <clears throat> and, so. and it is it's always these smaller groups of passionate people that are pushing technology and ideas forward the the like you mentioned the federal reserve they're they're not they're not coming up with anything new they're just kind of holding on and pushing forward it's already there like this this uh it, it is like a slow it's like if you popped a real small hole in a balloon and air seeping out it's not some big explosion it's just slowly deflating so um yeah i agree with you there yeah i mean you know the fed is worried about like how can we get ACH payments to be one day instead of two? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's their yeah. big initiative. Yeah. Like how can we do mm -hmm. same day ACH through Fedwire instead of having to use the clearinghouse to do two days? Or more importantly, how can we how can we increase the uh, how can we increase percentage rates by a percent without crushing the economy? That's a more right. important. Or, or even a quarter of a percent. Even yeah. a quarter of a percent is like yeah. you know it's the biggest discussion out there. I yeah, mean, for sure. Like your deal, you know, you're you're kind of maybe this is an extremely extreme analogy, but like you're kind of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? It's like mm -hmm. yeah, okay, you move this chair a little bit. It doesn't matter yeah like yeah. you're there's this whole bigger macro forces that you're not even like considering right mm -hmm. and you only have like the smallest level the smallest lever to try to like affect any change mm -hmm. you know so again i think you know it's um it's a philosophical you know mindset you know for me is that like who's working on these things where are they working and they're they're all in crypto, and in my experience, there's many more of them in EOS 
mm-hmm. than there are in a lot of the other cryptos that I've looked into. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the, a lot of the Bitcoin people, which I know a lot of, and I love them. It's a speculative device, right? It's Bitcoin's not a currency. Mm-hmm. Can't spend it in merchants, right? It's all about like, how much money can I make on this and how quickly yeah. has been a lot of that. Not mm-hmm. how much better can I make things or what can I build that's going to increase or, or enhance society. You know what I mean? And I know that this may sound um, trite, but you know, I think that part of that is, you know, honestly, Brock Pierce. I mean, having that kind of approach is like when you hear him talk these days and I've known Brock for years, Mm-hmm. Uh, and we haven't always gotten along. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you hear him in the last year or so, mm-hmm. it's much more like positivity, like let's build something great, you know, like let's be optimistic, like let's just grow and build. And I don't hear that in the Bitcoin communities all that time. They just don't have that opportunity. It's, mm-hmm. It wasn't built to do that, right? It was built to kind of, at least it's been used to make as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's certainly one of the big drivers of why we did the first version in, in, of LD2 in, in Ethereum, but that we're, you know, enthusiastically moving into EOS, you know? So that's, what's, that's, your guys's, what's your guys' timeline on getting into EOS and, and having that kind of getting, the, getting it set up? So the, uh, most of the operational pieces in terms of getting the vault um, is done, you know, um, uh, we're building the smart contracts right now. I was actually, I actually met with our uh, lead developer over the weekend. Um, our plan was the end of June. That seems like it's going to get pushed back. Um, so, you know, people can still buy the Ethereum version. We still have some ounces for sale if anybody's interested. Um, so, Smart contracts are in the process. The next big piece we need is partners. You know, I think if there's any ask from this conversation, it would be that people that are interested in this kind of product, whether it be exchanges, which I think is a big piece that we need, because ultimately that's where liquidity is found and that's where people can get in and out and find new tokens and so forth. So um, exchanges are a big piece we need. And the next, the other big piece we need is funding, is financing, you know. Um, it's easy to issue a token with nothing backing it because the expenses are very low. Mm-hmm. When it comes to having to buy an ounce of silver so that we can issue a token, the funding realities and the financing becomes much more critical. Uh, we don't want to go down the path of promising people silver Mm-hmm. that we don't yeah. already have mm-hmm. uh, back to the tether discussion. Uh, so we want to be, and as we did with the first version, right, we bought 10,000 ounces. We issued 10,000 tokens and people can buy those ounces that we already own, you know? So along those same line, a financing partner or somebody who can give us a line of credit so we can perpetually buy new, new ounces and issue new tokens in tranches, similar to the way tether did with their tranches would be, you know, the kind of the two big pieces we need, you know, and those are, uh, those are really the two big hurdles we have, you know, and, you know, money would probably solve both of them, 
Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, uh, for people who are listening to this, if you know uh, any ways to help with that, then go ahead and do it. You can always reach out in the EOS podcast uh, Telegram channel or get a hold of me or extra. And and, uh, and what's the what's the website again for uh, for you for the Liberty so Dollar Two? It is ld2coin.io. And that's where you can buy the Ethereum tokens. You can read our white paper. Uh, you can see the auto reports. Uh, and you can see what we're planning next with this next big issuance. Rad. Well, this has been a really fun talk. And uh, we should do it again. Um, have you back on the podcast and, and see how things are coming along. Um, on my end, let me give a shout out to our uh, hybrid.games. Scott is our sound engineer at the EOS podcast. He does epic stuff. And he's also an EOS developer. He's working on a really cool project called hybrid.games. Um, it is there. Basically, let me just read a bit here. There's plenty of traditional games around for you to squint your eyes and button mash. Let your other senses go. have a go. By navigating these non-visual sensory inputs, you'll begin finding what are permanent digital items on the EOS blockchain. There is, he's built a game called Spores that uh, brings your other senses into gaming. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and so go to hybrid.games and you can contact them and uh, you know submit a message if you're interested. And I'll keep you guys up to date. Uh, I have a proxy, Mr. Happy Money proxy, where I vote for the best, most transparent, empowering, and building together block producers. Um, and oh, eoswriter.io our media wing here um, partnered with eos writer and eos writer has jumped onto the scene as one of the most uh trusted and well-respected and up-to-date media sources in all of eos so um check out eoswriter.io if you already don't do that that's where a lot of people are getting their eos news these days that is the end of my ending spiel. You got anything uh, to, to extra add on there, extra? No, Brent, I just, you know, thank you very much um, for having me. You know, it's great to talk about LD2. I will give a very short shout out to CSX. Uh, yes. Because I think they're doing some interesting stuff with their first DAC on the main net. And um, yeah, check us out at ld2coin.io. And thanks again for having us. Cheers. Cheers, my EOS podcast friends. The money is not the prime asset in life. Time is the 